A lot of you have been asking me for insomnia treatment options, so I want to let you know I have launched an insomnia treatment course. It's a very structured and effective treatment program with a lot of clinical evidence support. So one course is in Chinese and one is in English. You can find it at deepintosleep.co forward slash insomnia. Years ago, I had a sleep tracker. When I read the data in the morning, it would tell me, oh, you slept better than 80% of the people. I was like, what does that mean? And sometimes I had a bad night of sleep. It tell me, oh, you are at the bottom 20%. I was like, huh, is this a competition? It makes me more anxious. Recently, I got another sleep tracker. When I look into the data in the morning, it shows I have more than 30% of deep sleep at night. As a sleep researcher, I become worried. I was like, this is different than what I know from clinical research. Should I be worried? This seems like too much. So now the question is, how accurate are those sleep trackers? Are they really able to help us optimize our sleep or make it worse? To answer this question, I invite an expert who does a lot of research in this area. Jesse Cook, who is a PhD candidate from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He will share with us all his knowledge in this area. Let's welcome Jesse. Hi, Jesse. Welcome to Deep Into Sleep podcast. Hey, Yushan. Good morning. Morning, morning. I'm still drinking my morning coffee, and it's going to be a fun conversation. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm uh, you know honored to be on. You've had quite the, the guest list before me, and I appreciate you fitting uh, this recording into a more convenient time for me than perhaps you, uh, given our time zone differences. But uh, either way, I'm, I'm looking forward to this, and I imagine we're going to have a great conversation. Yeah, great. So, Jesse, how about um, you introduce yourself to our audience first? Uh, sure. So, my name is Jesse Cook. I'm a fifth-year clinical psych uh, doctoral student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, I specialize in sleep research broadly um, with a focus on kind of research trying to improve the clinical care of unexplained hypersomnolence disorders such as idiopathic hypersomnia or hypersomnolence disorder, whichever nosology you're using. Um, and I also have kind of a supplementary line of research that focuses on the kind of utility and shortcomings of commercially available sleep tracking technology. Uh, and it may be uh, helpful a little bit for my background. I initially started at the University of Arizona um, in about 2011. I found sleep there because of a class that just uh, harmoniously fit my Tuesday, Thursday schedule. It was sleep and sleep disorders taught by the late Dr. Richard Bootson. And uh, I was just really interested in dreams as a kind of a hippie undergrad, if you will. Uh, but Dr. Bootson really opened my eyes to this uh, remarkably vast and beautiful world of sleep from a kind of research perspective, but also a clinical perspective. And um, to kind of fast forward a bit, you know, his time, I, I spent a year in his lab as an undergrad research assistant, made a lot of great mentors that I'm immensely grateful for, and then have transitioned to the University of Wisconsin, where I did research with Dr. David Plant for four years before starting grad school. And that's where I really gained my kind of advanced research skill set and interest in hypersomnolence. And now I'm, fingers crossed, navigating the end of graduate school and hopeful to uh, kind of launch my career 
uh, as not just a researcher in sleep, but hopefully a licensed clinical psychologist with a specialty in behavioral sleep medicine. Wow, congratulations. And seems like quite a long journey, just like uh, many other people in the field, right? And a lot of work, a lot of study, a lot of research, hard work, eventually, but you are pursuing the passion, the dream, the interest, and that's a lot of dedication right there. Absolutely. And, you know, you kind of touched upon it. This field has such an amazing blend of individuals with diverse perspectives and backgrounds that all have a unique journey to find sleep. To me, that's been one of the blessings about the field is just the types of personalities I get to work with, you know, uh, establishing a relationship with you today, Sean, is another kind of one of those blessings about being in this field. It's been a, a strange bit of serendipity to find myself in this place, which in some ways we'll probably talk about with wearable sleep trackers. I just reflect on it every day and I'm like, wow, I, I really appreciate where I'm at and more days than not, I really like what I'm doing for work. Uh, and I think that's a blessing in its own right. Definitely. Definitely. How many people, I'm wondering how many people listening to our show really enjoy their work day by day, right? I think we do. And that's definitely very, very um, happy thing. Every day full of motivation, feel life is so meaningful. I know a lot of people, especially where I am in Silicon Valley, a lot of people work in a fancy place, earn a lot of money, but they feel empty inside. So that's another topic we always try to figure out. Meaning of Yeah. Life. And I, I think it's so beautifully said, and I think it interrelates with sleep so well, because you find this unfortunate, I think, pattern. And I was actually talking to my partner about it this morning on our walk where habitually people, you know, come home from work and they may not be excited about their one. They've been run down from their job and they get this rust of energy because they're home and they're safe. And they end up kind of merging into the couch, right. And watching TV and kind of, um, disengaging from the world and the reality. But in turn, that leads to kind of poor sleep habits, maybe poor sleep from a duration and quality perspective, which then interferes with their kind of motivation and happiness the following day. And you get kind of this vicious cycle. Um, and I, I find it uh, all too pervasive across our society. So I love that that is a kind of a major theme of this podcast as well. Yeah, great. So since you talk about wearables, right? <laughs> That's something actually a lot of people been asking me when I work with others or even friends. When we talk, I, I say, oh, I do some sleep research. I treat insomnia. Then a lot of people start asking this question because, you know, life is busy, work is stressful. On top of that, if people don't feel like life is meaningful and then it can intervene with their sleep. So a lot of people want to use these trackers to make sure they can sleep well, they sleep okay, and they check it every morning. Uh, even right now, I wear something and I'm curious about my data. Yeah, since I never really done that before, I'm like experiencing that myself. So I'm curious, Jesse, based on your research and uh, all the literatures you have read, is that really reliable? Possibly a big question. Yeah, and a, a great question. And one that's definitely at the forefront of not just the research field right now, but also the, the clinical domain, right? You know, industry over the last 10 years has done a, a remarkable job of kind of pushing this technology forward. And it's been a benefit, but it's also led to a lot of complexity as you're kind of describing yourself, not just from a consumer perspective, but from a provider perspective. 
you know, I really got into this line of work haphazardly. And about, about five years back, six years back, I was doing some research in patients experiencing unexplained hypersomnolence. And Dr. Plant came into my office one day and uh, put a Fitbit. I didn't even know it was a Fitbit at the time on my desk. And he goes, do you know what this is? And I was like, I don't know. It looks like an activity tracker. And he goes, do you want to put it on participants? And I was like, does it measure sleep? And he's like, I think so. And that was kind of our first foray into this world. And that was the uh, Fitbit Flex, one of the kind of early models that really only relied on a single sensor, uh, just kind of a motion sensor, similar to actigraphy, an accelerometer. Uh, and we found that that device was extremely poor at estimating sleep duration. And at that time, they weren't even trying to classify sleep, meaning define the stages to the degree that they're doing now. But th what they were doing then was still really, really poor. And without going into too much detail, there was a lot of ethical issues there too about like on the webpage, it said like, if you have a sleep disorder, use this setting, but like sleep disorders aren't all the same. So which sleep disorders and why, and where's the research there? And so that got me really interested. And uh, we then have assessed a few other devices that are called multi-sensory, meaning they bring in other biosignals. Uh, the first biosignal that came online was, was heart rate. And so we saw an advancement in the technology based on this kind of hardware change where it wasn't just movement, but it was heart rate now that was used to, in the algorithm to detect sleep versus wake, but also to classify um, the different stages of sleep. And yeah, the earlier models weren't that great. You know, we were looking at kind of overestimations of sleep, maybe by about 30 to 40 minutes. You know, we were looking at uh, about a estimation ability, a, a kind of percentage agreement with PSG, polysomnography, when it comes to the staging of deeper stages at about 30%. That's not very good. And then we saw a real evolution in kind of the past two or three years, where a lot of these multi-sensory devices are actually really good at uh, reliably detecting sleep duration. So when people ask me what they can do, I actually feel really comfortable with their estimations of sleep duration. There's a great paper by Chino et al. in 2020 that evaluated about seven or eight of these devices at once against polysomnography and using a clinical actigraph as well. And these devices perform better than the clinical actigraph when it comes to their estimations of sleep duration. Now, they're still not great at detecting stages. So I wouldn't go changing your life, Yishan, about your, your deep sleep or your REM sleep percentages. You know, at best, there's still about a 60 to 70% accuracy and agreement with polysomnography um, and uh, kind of registered um, certified sleep uh, specialist staging. But that's still a massive improvement over the 30% with where they were about three to four years ago. So to kind of answer your question there, it's, it's still a little messy, but ultimately they're doing pretty good at the sleep duration estimations. I think they're capturing bedtime and rise time pretty reliably as well. And I think from a provider standpoint, you're probably really interested in those numbers. Now, when it comes to sleep onset latency and, and wake after sleep onset, they're a little bit more variable. These devices are, are inherently limited in their ability to capture motionless wake, right? If I'm laying there like, oh my God, I, I can't sleep. I'm unable to sleep. Oh, if I don't go to sleep now, I'm not going to be able to be my best self the next day, right? These devices may not be able to detect that as wake. They may still misclassify that as sleep. So I think the next evolution is to bring in some self-applied EEG technology. And some of the more expensive devices do have headbands. 
Uh, and they, they seem to do better at detecting these motionless wake episodes. Uh, so I think the future is really pairing our kind of accelerometry, our heart rate, and our EEG in these wearable universal devices to really improve their quantification and classification abilities. Oh, wow. So sounds like when we use these wearable uh, trackers, we possibly have to be uh, be careful about what data is more reliable than other data, right? So sounds like with the nowadays technology, it's not that, oh, is this wearable good or bad? It's like what you are trying to get from it. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I love talking in all or nothings in black and white, right? Isn't that how the world works? No, of course, there's some middle ground here. And, and that's, I think, a real challenge we have in the field clinically and from a research perspective and our relationships with industry is not trying to be too dogmatic here and trying to find harmony between these three domains. Be like, okay, well, look, like, you know, from a research perspective, we really need them to operate in this fashion. We, we really can't have these errors that your devices are having. And clinically, we really need to protect the patient data a lot better than you're doing. And we can't really have the, the numbers changing overnight because your software changes. And my patient's 15 minutes of sleep onset latency then becomes 27 minutes because you've changed your algorithm. Which, which one is it, right? And so it's about finding the harmony between these three domains that can unlock the true potential of, of this emerging domain. Mm, yeah, technology is there, how we use it to really benefit us, not hurting us. I remember when I uh, interviewed Dr. Guy Schlenner, uh, no, yeah, Leschner, sorry, <laughs> a long time ago, he mentioned a little bit this um, orthothomia nowadays, mm. right? Because we are wearing these trackers and then people start developing insomnia. <laughs> uh -huh. Sleep become a performance. Yeah, no, beautifully said. And you know, I think this really came out of a great paper, I believe by Dr. Kelly Barron in about 2016, 2017, that really started to draw our attention to potential harm and negative effects of kind of over-tracking and too much data. And I actually get like kind of a negative pit in my stomach when the term orthosomnia comes up, because I think if it gets a little bit too overemphasized, I think it's a real thing. I think there are people out there harmed by their data, but I also think people are harmed as we know, by staring at the clock too much. And some people do, and some people don't, right? So it's not necessarily the device itself. It's about determining which personality characteristics, which individual phenotypes are susceptible to having harm from these devices. And so that's kind of where I wish we would start allocating our efforts and research is kind of determining for who are these things helpful and for who are these things harmful. Mm, that's another great topic, I think. Right now, when I lead CBTI group to treat insomnia, I'm just trying to ask everyone within that four weeks of treatment, not wear any trackers, just in case I don't want to add any unnecessary anxiety on top of things. But I can definitely tell when we run a group, there are a lot of people. And within the group, everyone is slightly different, right? Some people actually, they are okay to look at the data and understand their sleep a little better. Uh, some people are not okay to do that. And for the sleep log, the same thing. Some people get anxious even by feeling out how, how they think they slept last night. And some people are totally fine with it. So definitely there's some personality like a trait, right? This, the, how anxious you are, how worried you are, all these varieties among people. 
I think that's beautifully said. And again, that's why we shouldn't be in all or nothings and we shouldn't be talking about universalities. We should try to get down to the, the personal individual level here and figuring out, you know, is it perfectionism? What is this trait that is, you know, degrading the utility of these devices and even degrading the utility of our interventions sometime? I'm, I'm a training clinician. And sometimes when I deliver CBTI and, you know, I'm doing some cognitive therapy, sometimes that even harms people by like drawing attention, having them kind of challenge their own beliefs sometimes leads to heightened beliefs. And it's just kind of the nature of the game. And we have to find how to relate to that person to kind of lessen it, but it's not going to be the same way as working with somebody else. And I'm sure you've probably experienced that to some degree too. Right, definitely. So everyone's so different. And talking about that, I'm wondering, possibly it's a good time to maybe uh, help our audience to understand the different sleep stage. What's the scientific percentage of those. Since I've been using different, I've been trying different trackers and I noticed the percentage when I read from the data is so different than what I learned mm. when we were trained as a clinician, right? As a sleep specialist. Um, like, so how about you help our uh, audience understand a little bit? What are the normal percentage for deep sleep, for REM sleep, you know, for other stages. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, I'll, I'll preface with this. It's complicated. And I think, you know, Dr. Michael Grander, who, who harps on this a lot, would would agree with the statement is we don't really know what is normal and what is what is abnormal truly in this, this regard. Um, but there are some kind of general recommendations that the National Sleep Foundation draws to when they talk about sleep quality. And, and this gets brought up. And so if we really look at polysomnography defines sleep stages. We're going to have to get out of these terms, light sleep and deep sleep. Okay. So we're going to have to start first with non-rapid eye movement sleep and rapid eye movement sleep. And those are our two main umbrellas. And then within non-rapid eye movement sleep, we have stage one, stage two, and stage three. So in total, you have four unique sleep stages, the three in non-REM and the one in REM. And then you have wake, which I still like to lump in because it's part of the sleep period. Now, when we look at the sleep stages, they all serve different purposes, but we tend to go through a kind of repeatable process throughout the night, and it's defined as sleep architecture. And it kind of looks like the staircase where we spend some time in N1, then we go down to N2, then we go down to N3, and then we hit some REM, and then we go back up. And that's kind of our REM cycle. And across the night, that takes different shape. At the beginning of the night, we actually have more N3 slow wave sleep than we do REM. And that kind of flip-flops at the back half of the night where we get more REM than slow wave sleep. But from a percentage perspective, kind of some crude numbers to think about in those terms are about 5% of our sleep is about N1. It's this kind of light sleep. It's a transition between wake and the deeper stages. Our brains start to slow down a little bit. And, you know, we may actually still have some consciousness that we would perceive as wake in that. That's up for debate. And then we have something called N2 where we spend the vast majority of our night in. And this is generally about 50 to 55% of our sleep. Uh, so the bulk of our sleep is generally in N2. And then we have N3, which is slow wave sleep. And it's generally perceived as the stage of sleep that provides us restoration. And some persons who do not derive restoration from their sleep may have deficiencies in slow wave sleep. That's something that our, my laboratory, Dr. Plant's laboratory, is kind of unearthed with these disorders of kind of unexplained sleepiness. Um, but generally, we're spending about anywhere from 15 to 25% of our night of sleep in that, and similar with REM, about 15 to 25%. But again, the percentage matters, but also the timing matters. 
because we know when these types of stages happen have relationship to the quality of sleep we're having and also potential disorders. So for instance, persons experiencing narcolepsy often have REM much earlier in the night than healthy sleepers. They have something called a sleep onset REM episode where it happens within the first 15 minutes of their sleep period. It's a REM intrusion. That's a defining feature of their disorder. But that can also happen if you're extremely sleep deprived. You can go right and have a REM rebound immediately. And kind of similarly, um, with slow wave sleep, if you have an intense amount of physical activity, if you're extremely exhausted, it's mapped onto our sleep need. So we might say some robust slow wave sleep just because you've been either chronically sleep deprived as well, or you just ran a marathon, or you've had you've been psychologically and emotionally and cognitively taxed throughout your day. All those things can lead to differences in your stages of sleep across the night. So as I circle back to the beginning, it's complicated, but generally about 5% N1, about 50 to 55% N2, about 15 to 25% N3 and REM as well. And we generally like to think that light sleep is probably N1 and N2, if we're kind of mapping on to these terms that are in the um, devices, N3 is probably your deep sleep. And then REM is hopefully REM. Uh, And so that's kind of, I think the translation between kind of our actual empirical understanding at this juncture and this commercial description. Right. I think that's great clarification for our audience for everyone who listening, watching to really understand, right? All these are part of sleep. All this can be healthy, helpful for our whole body and brain to get rested and to really be ready for the next day. Because I know there are a lot of anxieties around, oh, how much deep sleep I get. Oh, I got too much REM. Oh, this is bad. Oh, my last day's sleep, like N1, N2, possibly too much. Uh, I'm not sleeping well. A lot of Chinese also do that since I'm from Chinese culture. A lot of people like eat too much REM. They think if you dream in any way, it's bad sleep. Oh, that's uh, such a rooted thoughts for a lot of people. <laughs> Well, that's unfortunate. I love dreaming. Uh, it's one of my favorite things. And when I get to remember my dreams and unpack them in the morning, I, I get really excited about that. So hopefully, you know, we can uh, you can usher in an era of challenging that kind of cultural belief. Right. I like dreaming too, even though I may or may not remember it. People also get anxious if they remember their dreams. They feel like they possibly did not sleep deeply <laughs> if they remember their dream. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? But in turn, I think that's generally a good indication of healthy sleep. Obviously, the content of the dream matters quite a bit. And whether it's had the frequency and magnitude of the terror in the dream matters quite a bit. But as you said, these elements of sleep are all important. And they all kind of engage and interact with one another to formulate healthy sleep. And it's not one thing or another. It's about kind of having it all come together. And um, some of this is, is... relevant to kind of this modern kind of commercial involvement we're having now with kind of some clinical surrogates uh, where some companies are actually coming in and creating devices that disrupt REM sleep in order to prevent nightmares. And certainly there's rationale there, right? If we're not spending as much time in REM, then we're probably not going to have nightmares. But what's the lasting implication of just kind of extinguishing and abolishing REM? That's probably not good for memory, emotional processing, and all the other factors of life. So again, it's complicated, but it's a delicate balance, as as you're uh, alluding to, between prioritizing all these things across our day that can contribute to healthy sleep, 
but alleviating pressure. And hand up, I'm not immune to the anxiety and pressure of sleep, especially before my clinical training days. I want to be sharp. I want to make sure that I'm firing. I want to, you know, these are complex days. And naturally, that's doing a disservice to my ability to sleep at night when I start focusing on that. I actually have a mantra that I go through sometimes when I start feeling those feelings and that anxiety building about releasing the pressure. And I use my breath and I push that pressure out. And yeah, it doesn't always work, but that's when we have to turn to our more kind of invasive, if you will, interventions, these stimulus control therapies, things like that, that keep it at a single night, keep it in the acute phase and don't make it a chronic issue over time. Right. Oh, those are very important message. I'm so happy you mentioned those for people to really understand and look into their own sleep, their own life, how they can navigate it and prioritize sleep is always important. Not a lot of people are doing that. Sleep always the first thing to go if life is busy. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And it's it's pervasive across cultures. And, and unfortunately, it's, um, you know, it's a contributor to kind of the issues we're having in our daytime hours. And, you know, I used to think that that sleep and I'm, I will be first to admit, I'm now immensely biased here, but I used to think sleep was on par with the other pillars of health, whether it be nutrition, physical activity, spirituality, socialization equal. Now to me, sleep is below that. And sleep is the foundation of health. And again, hands up, I'm immensely biased at this point, but I believe those other domains are extremely dependent upon sleep. Yes. It's bi-directional across the board, but your wake time hours are so much more enhanced and meaningful if you could have quality sleep. And I didn't say sleep of eight hours. I said quality sleep. And it's about finding the number for you. And it's about finding the consistency and rhythm for you because day-to-day -day variability exists because of our life stressors and just because of our sleep need. And so being fixated on a number is never the right approach, but being fixated on keeping a consistent rise time, I will say is an important approach. Yeah, talking about the numbers, I know there's a lot of um, anxieties around that too, but I'm curious from, you know, since we are talking about trackers. So for numbers, some people, they when they have insomnia, as both you and me know, they may, you know, wake up two or three a.m. and they could not go back to sleep anymore. So a lot of people start worried. They're like, huh, so my night got cut half somewhat. Will Will that means I won't be able to have REM sleep at all? Because, you know, think about the percentage and time. I possibly have N1, N2, N3, and then I'm awake. Then no REM. So it doesn't mean no REM for me forever. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, that's certainly um, a, a reasonable hypothesis, given the information that's been reported. And again, we, I believe, as humans want to develop some flexible thinking and, and come up with as many alternative hypotheses as possible. So the reality is you've probably already experienced some of REM, right? It's not that we don't have any REM in the first half of the night. It's just that we don't have as much as we normally do in the back half of the night when REM becomes more dense, if you will, across our sleep. And the other side of it is we also have to recognize that worrying is not going to help us, right? It, it, we have to be aware of that and start to try and intervene in a manner that allows us to ground that worrying and allow us the best chance to return to sleep. And also recognize that it's okay if we have a poor night of sleep. It's not going to kill us. And in fact, a poor night of sleep often precedes a really good night of sleep. So perhaps you won't get the REM you want that night. But if we don't get in our way, that next night of sleep is going to be really rich. And it's going to have some great REM. And so that's, I think, the way I would kind of approach that with somebody is like, well, perhaps you've actually already accumulated a fair amount of REM. 
And the reality is why it's so difficult at times to get back to sleep at two and three in the morning is you've actually accumulated a lot of slow wave sleep because that's usually in the first half of night. And that's the restorative aspect. So when we have those awakenings about five hours into our sleep period, it can be very difficult to get back to sleep. But then it becomes about our coping strategies, which are emotional and problem focused. And the problem focused stuff is, well, getting ourselves out of the bed when we know we're not getting back to sleep and things are getting frustrated, right? And then kind of the emotional side is how are we going to land that frustration? How are we going to take that amygdala and calm it down and say, you know what? I'm not going to let this negative thing control my life. I'm going to find peace and happiness. I'm going to read. I'm going to fold laundry. I'm going to pet my pets, whatever it may be that can distract and take a negative into a positive. I don't know about you, Yishan, but in my life, truthfully, some of the most suffering moments is when I'm sitting there and maybe this is a privilege in a lot of ways from this being the most suffering, but laying there in bed in the middle of the night being like, I have to get back to sleep. Why can't I get back to sleep? You feel like a prisoner in that bed. But as soon as you can unlock yourself and free yourself and go in another room and have a warm cup of caffeine-free tea uh, somewhere in a different room and relax yourself, I think you start to change the dynamic. And even if you don't get back to sleep, your headspace the next day is so much more improved. Yeah. Wow. So I think, see, that's why I think a lot of psychologists could be really good at treating the sleep problems because we understand people's mind. We understand how self-talk can be powerful, either positive ones or negative ones. A lot of time is to accept the challenge and let down the struggles, right? We don't entangle with the sleep monsters, all that. I feel like those are so important. Couldn't agree more. And, you know, circling back to the tracker thing, again, this is an added layer of complexity, right? We have our data immediately in front of us in the morning. And I often, you know, again, training clinician, but when I'm working with individuals on these matters, I want them to fill out their sleep diaries before they look at their trackers. I want them to perceive their restoration from sleep before they look at that data, because that data can bias us. And there was a good research study that showed sham data uh, that showed that it was kind of more insomnia-like data than what the person's sleep actually was, and it changed their perspective of their sleep. So we have to be mindful that our internal representation of our sleep, maybe not immediately upon awakening, but about 10, 15 minutes later, is probably a better representation of our sleep than what that tracker is telling us right now. And that tracker is useful. There is some utility to having that as kind of a motivational force for some people, right? But we just don't want it to control our sleep. And I think that's kind of where you're coming from in a lot of ways. Right. So I think a lot of important messages being sent out today, right? Sleep, again, sleep is not performance. Don't try to control it. We possibly all tried there. We all have bad night of sleep. <laughs> Me too, for sure. My audience possibly know if they listen to my other episode, I shared when I drink caffeine, like milk tea, I like boba tea. But if I drink it in the evening, oh, I won't really sleep well the night. Exactly like you described, I can choose to lay down there struggling, trying to force myself or do something else. So it's it's never going to work if you try to control your sleep. You you try to let yourself say, shut your eyes, shut my eyes, just go to sleep right now at this moment. And your brain won't listen to you. <laughs> Absolutely. We have to invite in the possibility of sleep. We have to land our planes and, and do the things that we know are helpful for sleep. And that way we are controlling it. That's our way to control sleep, right? 
But I like to think of it as you're kind of describing as influencing our sleep. You know, there's still going to be nights where we, we think we do everything right. We exercise in the morning. We practice relaxation throughout our day. We stopped caffeine before noon. We had a meditation session right before bed. We journaled, we stretched, we did it all. We got away from artificial light. And yet for some reason, we're not finding sleepiness and that's okay. And we just have to be okay with that. Maintain our consistent rise time in the morning and recognize that over time sleep's so important. The body the body sleep will find the body and the mind is I guess a better way of saying it. Right. That's very beautiful. Uh, very beautiful quote. Maybe we're going to quote it <laughs> on the, on the flyer. Um, yeah. So I think for whoever listening, right, take all this message away and think about your own sleep and your own struggle. Again, like I think our message possibly really resonates with someone, but if you feel like your own, you, situation is very unique. Always find a specialist in your area because like we discussed earlier, there are a lot of personal um, varieties. Everyone's somewhat different. Everyone thinks differently. So find a specialist possibly can really help out. Well said. Yeah. So thanks, Jesse. And at the end of the show, any final wisdom you want to share with everyone? <laughs> Even though we already have a lot of wisdom <laughs> throughout the <this> show. <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you, Sean, for having me on. It's been a true privilege. And um, I hope that the listeners appreciated this content. I could talk much more in-depthly about sleep and um, wearables and, and other areas that I'm interested in. And uh, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. It's at, at sleep and sports. Uh, I'm happy to, to talk further about any of this stuff. And honestly, I just want to grant you permission to have poor nights of sleep. And as Ishan said, if it becomes really a problem, a couple nights, you know, turns into five nights in a row, turns in a week, it's not a weakness to reach out. It's a strength. And there are a lot of resources now, whether it's in-person or digital, where that can really help. And again, for me, it's foundational. I'm better with my partner. I make better food choices. I can uh, stress my body more physically. I can handle more emotional and cognitive stress throughout a day. It makes me the person I want to be. And once you develop that relationship with sleep, I think prioritizing the things that influence good sleep, not control it, but influence it, become much easier from a habitual standpoint. Wow. Wonderful. Very, very well said. So let's all try to influence our sleep, not to control it. I, I think I will definitely remember that after listening to this. <laughs> Thank you, Jess. We, we have to get you back for sure. I really enjoyed the conversation and I know there are a lot more conversations we could have and we will see what audience have questions about. Feel free to leave message to us. Feel free to reach out to Jesse. I will put his uh, Twitter and any other account information if you want to share with us. I will put it on the show notes. So when people listen to the show, they will be able to find your information. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me, Sean, and uh, everyone be well. If you are still trying to perform well during your sleep, hopefully this episode will help you. You can find all the information about Jesse Cook on our show note at deepintosleep.co. Now, I have launched several sleep courses. Some are in English, some are in Chinese. Check them out, see whether they can help you. You can find them on the website at deepintosleep.co.
And for you, my podcast listener, I will offer a twenty percent off coupon code Deep Into Sleep as a thank you gift for your support. Again, I'm so grateful to have you here. I'm your host, Dr. Yishan. I will see you next time. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently, and there is so much we can do to improve sleep quality. Keep hope and carry on. This podcast is for general informational purpose only and does not include the practice of medicine or other health professional services. Usage of the information we share is at the listener's own risk, and our content does not intend to be a substitute for any medical and professional services, diagnoses, and treatment. Please seek professional health services as needed. Are you suffering from insomnia? I promise you, the CBTI method in my course will definitely help you. Even if several nights of better sleep, that would be a world-changing experience for you. I have had so many success from my insomnia patients who have taken this course over the years. If you know someone who are struggling with sleep, go to my website and check out my course at deepintosleep.co/insomnia.